will you pray with me? And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as some of you know, I am an introvert. I've talked about it a few times. There's many people that are surprised by that when I say it. And I remember even one person uh, questioning me, telling me I was pretty much wrong about myself and hadn't figured myself out. And that's partly because when we think of introverts, we think of shyness a lot. And uh, I'm not necessarily shy. Um, but rather, introversion and extroversion have to do with where we get our energy from. So extroverts get their energy from being around other people, and introverts get our energy from being alone. Now, don't misunderstand. I love people. If not, I'm in the wrong profession. But to re-energize, to refill my bucket, I need time alone by myself to do that. And so for many years, my parents have given me a little trip away for my birthday each year that I have affectionately called my introvert intermission. And I go away for four or five days all by myself. And other than the person that checks me in on the first day, I hardly speak to anybody. And sometimes halfway through the week, I just make a sound like, ah, to make sure I have a voice. And it is glorious. I love it. Well, in the place that we stay, usually on the balcony, there is a little bistro table and a couple of chairs at the table and then two that are over to the side. And so one time I was sitting out at that table and I was just noticing the chairs around the space and I was like, three, four chairs, three empty chairs, hmm, a trio. And so I got up and I moved the two from the, four cor the corners of the, the balcony to the table and now there were four chairs and I began to picture the Trinity sitting with me. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and me. Four chairs, all filled. It seemed right. And it's become kind of a tradition when I go there that I enjoy my table time with the Trinity. Now honestly, I'm going to say that part of the reason I love time with the Trinity at the table rather than just one person of the Trinity is because I am an introvert. And for introverts, like small talk, is it, it takes a lot of energy. And so I often imagine myself sharing breakfast with the Trinity and I'm eating and just sitting there and the Trinity's doing the talking. Like they're discussing, they're sharing wisdom, they're laughing, reminiscing, and I'm fully included. I'm a part of it. But there's no pressure on me to contribute. There's nothing I need to do other than just fully embrace the full presence of God, the fullness of God. And it's special to me. But most likely, the thing I love about the time with the Trinity is that we were made for relationship, even us introverts. We are made by a God who is relational at the core. And so when we are made in God's image, that means we're relational too. David Gushy describes it this way, to say that God is triune is to mean that God is social in nature. It is also to say that those made in the image of God are likewise intrinsically social. There is one God, and the unity of this one God is absolute. Yet this God is described in scripture as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I learned that the idea of this trinity with an open seat at the table was not new just to me. That's actually been around for a while. And perhaps the seed was planted during seminary, and I just don't remember this. 
But this Trinity icon on the screens is a panel painting that was written in the early 15th century by a Russian monk artist named Andrei Rublev. And it's probably the most famous Russian religious piece of art. In this icon of the Trinity, you see three figures in unity at the table with the front exposed and opened, inviting you, the viewer, to come and join them, to engage with them, to share the hospitality of the table. And all three illustrated figures, they possess identical features, which is not a mistake. The, it's the three persons of the Trinity are identical, each fulfilling their own particular role or persona. And the way that the figures turn to each other and incline their heads, and the way the arms are open around, they create almost immediately this circular pattern of unity. I mean, even at first glance, this icon proclaims God as a trinity in unity, three distinct yet united persons, three yet one. Now, the doctrine of the trinity is admittedly difficult to comprehend and to understand. And maybe you, or rather a friend, have had questions about it. And so I'm really glad you asked. So we could talk about that today on Trinity Sunday. And if you permit me, we have to start with just a little bit of history to understand where we get the doctrine of Trinity. And, and you will not see, when you go into scripture, the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. This ancient and really crucial teaching of the Trinity arose from out of early Christian reflection on scripture and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. A few early church fathers were trying to articulate the threefold nature of God as experienced and described in the Hebrew scripture and in the New Testament. You see, for the earliest followers, encountering Jesus was somehow encountering God directly. But at the same time, Jesus spoke of God as both distinct from him, yet one with him. And likewise, <clears throat> early disciples experienced encounters with the spirits as encounters with God directly. And at the same time, Jesus spoke of the Spirit as a guiding, challenging present, distinct, presence distinct from him and God. And so over time, the, the church's doctrine of the Trinity developed this idea that God is accurately regarded as both three and one. Not three gods, for that would miss God's oneness, but not merely one, for that would miss God's threeness. Clear as mud? Yeah, you're not alone. The church fathers struggled with this for nearly 400 years. It's challenging. And many of us try to create analogies and metaphors to explain the Trinity, but they all fail to capture the identity of the Trinity. And the problem with using analogies is that we often end up creating some kind of heresy by the time we get done. <coughs> Excuse me. You may have heard that the Trinity analogy related to a person's different roles in their life. For example, I am a pastor... I am a daughter, and I am also an aunt. But this analogy fails because it implies that there's one God who takes on three different forms or modes, father, son, and spirit. And that's a heresy called modalism. It ignores the unique personhood of each member of the Trinity. Or maybe you've heard the analogy about how the Trinity is like the sun and the light and the heat that it creates. But that also falls short because it implies that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are created by God and lesser than God. Like the sun produces light and heat, but they'll never be the sun, Jesus and Holy Spirit would never be God. 
And so that is a heresy called Arianism. And there are a few more heretical takes on the Trinity as we struggle to find words and ideas and concepts to communicate it. And to be honest, when a pastor preaches on the Trinity, which we don't do a lot, we're always worried we're going to step into it without even realizing it. For a humorous take on all of this, if you want to, you can Google St. Patrick's Bad Analogies on YouTube and enjoy about a three and a half minute uh, satire on this whole idea. The Trinity is a mystery beyond human reason and comprehension. And folks, we need to be more open and embracing of the mystery of God without having to have explanation. The Trinity requires faith and trust that God is a being in three persons known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess that each distinct person is God and Lord and that the deity of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, is one equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. So now that that is settled and everyone understands it, why does it even matter? Why does such a complicated doctrine is so crucial to our Christian faith? Well, perhaps our text today can help us understand better. You see, the Apostle Paul had spent at least two years with this young congregation he planted in the city of Corinth. He wrote them often, he visited them at least a couple of times on his travels, and Corinth was a bit of a problem child for Paul. The Corinthians fellowship was very fractured. They were fussing and they were divided. They'd been led astray by traveling preachers who challenged Paul's authority and the things that he taught them. And there was just this conflict, this deep division among them and immorality within the church. And so Paul had written some very harsh rebukes and words to them and letters to try and set them straight and to defend all that he had taught them. And our text today comes at the end of the second letter to Corinth in our scriptures. And at the end of that letter, Paul softens his words and approach a little bit to give them some encouragement and this genuine love-sourced appeal for them to know better and to do better and to focus on community and unity. In verses 11 through 12, we read this, Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul is saying, come on now. Get along with one another and be people of peace and community. Even if you don't agree on everything, even important things, you can find unity and peace together as God has taught us to live. Paul says, forgive one another. That is the only way that you give a holy kiss to someone is if that you've repaired what is between yourselves and forgiven one another. It's kind of like when a parent told you as siblings and you fought when you were younger, you guys need to shake hands and make up. Or we do that with a friend, hug them out after a fight. Bring back unity. Paul says if you do these things, you will experience the love and peace of God with you because God is a relationship-oriented God. God is communal. God thrives on relationships, even within God's self. Perfect oneness and harmony. And we are to be so as well, people of community and harmony. After Paul's final words here of heartfelt advice to this congregation that he loved deeply and was concerned for, he ends with this benediction, a benediction that's often used as services at the end as we go out to be the people of God. In verse 13, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, 
and the community of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Paul's words in verse 13 here are as close as we get to a Trinitarian statement in the New Testament. And if you're using a different translation than the NSRB that we use, you might find it in your Bible as verse 14. There's nothing tricky about that. This translation just combined a couple of verses there at the end. After his words here, Paul ends his letters almost always with some kind of benediction. And in almost every other writing that is attributed to Paul, he ends it with the grace of Jesus. Just the grace of Jesus Christ be with you. But here, he goes beyond that. He expands the resources available to the struggling congregation who is deeply divided and troubled. It's almost if Paul wants them to know what you face is difficult, but you are not alone. The fullness of God, the love of God, the grace of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you. See, Paul wrote to believers who, like us, struggled with failure and temptation, pride, bad habits, disagreements. And in this verse, he's saying, you need all the resources of God's Trinitarian fullness to help you be the people of God. You need the grace of Jesus with one another. You need the love of God. You need the community, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, its presence and power. And I think Paul's really intentional also in the ordering of that, my favorite benediction. It, the grace of Christ the love of God and the fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit. We start with what we know. God isn't some far off concept or harsh judge. God has broken into history and come to heal and forgive and to die and then be raised. And once that is established, we know Jesus says God loves us. We cannot question or doubt that. And all of this is made real by the Holy Spirit, the sustainer, the friend, the advocate, the fellowship fixer, the perpetual relationship healer that is sent to be with us, to abide and live in us. The doctrine of the Trinity is about a God living and active in our lives at every turn. It moves us from a God that's just up there to up there, down here, everywhere creating, redeeming, and empowering creation at every turn. In brief, the doctrine is ultimately about a world saturated with divine presence and a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Whenever you're at a restaurant or you go to visit a home uh, or you're out somewhere on a patio of a condo, you know what you will almost never find an odd number of chairs. Now, for some of my OCD friends, that makes you really happy. But for families of five, it can be a challenge. For a single person, it can be a painful reminder. A person years ago reflected that as a single person, she always noticed the number of chairs around someone's dining table. And if it's an odd number of chairs, she knew that if she were ever invited over, she would fit in and she would belong there. She knew that her presence wouldn't bring with it a sense of lack as one chair sits awkwardly empty, or she knew that her company wouldn't bring or get a, be a burden to them as all the other chairs are filled with couples and so that one unmatching chair has to be brought up for the basement for her. You see, an odd number of chairs at the table tells her they're ready for anything ready for any configuration of those gathered. And she knew they'd made room for her. 
you know, maybe God is an odd number because sometimes and somehow an odd number has a way of always leaving room for more. An odd number makes us stop and reconsider our plans to see how it's going to work for everyone. An even number says we're complete, there's no more room, it was made for us. An odd number says we have to listen and share and figure this out and make room for one another. And look, there's room for you. There's room at the table. There were an even number of chairs on my balcony deck, but thankfully there was an odd God who made room for me. That's God as Trinity, an odd trio with so much love shared between them that they want nothing more than to make room for others and to invite us in. Words will always fail us when we talk about the Trinity. There is no image or metaphor that can fully express God as three in one. But we're invited to embrace the mystery and the fullness of God. If you've heard nothing else this morning, hear this. With all of the brokenness and division in and around us, we need the very fullness of the triune God up there, down here, and everywhere to teach us and to empower us to be in relationship with God and with one another the way we were designed to be. And when we embrace our relationship with the Holy Trinity, an odd community that freely and joyfully makes space for others by God's very nature, we will also learn to make room for others. Come to the table. There's room for you. Today, we are grateful to come to the table, Christ's table. And friends, this is a joyous feast, a joyous celebration for the people of God. By the mysterious wonder of the triune God, we gather together to celebrate and to share with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room, with the churches of the ages, with men and women, with sisters and brothers who have come to the table, those that we know, those that we will never know. Here at this table, we trust the mystery of God. Here we come to be nourished, to go out and to feed the world. Here we come and we taste the divine presence. As we share in the cup and the bread, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God. He willingly gave himself up for us. And through his death and resurrection, he opened the way for us to forgiveness and to eternal life. The broken bread symbolizes Christ's body broken for us, and the cup symbolizes Christ's blood shed for us. As we eat and drink today, may we be nourished and sustained by the life-giving presence at the table. When we come, we're reminded of the intimate relationship we share with God and the relationships that we are called to share with one another. Trinity Sunday reminds us that our God is not a solitary being, but a divine community of love. The Father who created and sustains all things, the Son who redeems and reconciles us to himself, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guiding and empowering us in our Christian journey. It is through the work of the Trinity that we experience the fullness of God's love and grace. And God welcomes you all to the table. There's room for you here.
Let's pray together. Oh God, we give thanks for the table and for this meal, Christ meal. We ask you to bless this bread and cup. Still our minds and hearts as we pass the elements and as we partake as one family, so you might draw each one of us ever closer in fellowship with you and with one another. Amen.